0: Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of August 21st, 2022, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And you might have noticed that this past Monday, August 15th, was the 75th anniversary of Indian independence, August 15th, 1947. And some of the under-reported conflicts within the nation-state of India that we've been discussing on the Counter-Vortex podcast and website recently are really rooted in unfinished business left over from the colonial era and never really resolved upon independence. Now, the conflict in Kashmir and the occasional eruptions of jihadist terror in India make headlines in the West because it fits into the jiwat paradigm, so to speak, the global war on terrorism, radical Islam versus the West, blah, 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 blah. But almost entirely outside of the world media spotlight, There are various ethnic and peasant insurgencies in the center east and northeast of India, many informed by Maoism to one degree or another, and the counter-insurgency efforts against them have, of course, been attended by the inevitable, ghastly human rights abuses. And I'm going to be talking about two of these insurgencies tonight, that we've touched on before, and I've been trying to get more information on, because um, some books have come into the Counter-Vortex mail drop concerning these insurgencies that I have um, made time to read over the past week. The Naxalites and the Nagas. Wonder how many of you listeners who aren't either actually in India or already followers of Counter-Vortex are even aware of these two struggles. I'm going to start with the uh, Naxalites who recently made some headlines within India, reading from the Counter-Vortex Daily Report in a uh, little account that we ran last month. India High Court Rejects Probe of Adivasi Killings. The Supreme Court of India on July 14th dismissed a petition seeking an independent investigation into extrajudicial killings of adivasis, or tribal people, in villages in Chadisgarh state. The petition charges that state security forces, including the Chadisgarh police and affiliated paramilitary groups, were responsible for the deaths of villagers during anti-naxalite operations that took place in September and October 2009. The petition was filed by Gandhian social activist Himanshu Kumar and 12 relatives of the slain villagers. The petitioners sought an investigation by India's Central Bureau of Investigation, CBI, or the National Investigation Agency, NIA, In rejecting the petition, the court observed that these agencies had already investigated the villagers' deaths and had filed charges in the Chattisgarh courts for offenses including murder and banditry. However, these charges were all against members of Naxalite insurgent groups rather than the security forces the Indian government opposed the petition and sought perjury charges against the petitioners for supposedly false accusations against the security forces. The Supreme Court left it to the Chhattisgarh state government to decide on the perjury charge and other possible charges against the petitioners, such as criminal conspiracy. It also imposed costs of 500,000 rupees more than $6,000 on Kumar. So, that's pretty messed up. Now, uh, back when those atrocities took place 13 years ago, the Naxalite movement was in a period of explosive growth, and it's been going through a cycle of expansion and retreat for generations now, and has somewhat retreated over the past decade, but still controls much of a so-called Red Corridor. That stretches across the interior of East Central India from Bihar and West Bengal states in the north through the states of Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, and Orissa, or Odisha as it has now been renamed, to Andhra Pradesh in the south. The guerrillas take their name from the Naxal Bari Uprising, an armed peasant revolt in 1967 in the village of Naxalbari in Darjeeling District of West Bengal State. But the, uh, the book that I picked up about them provides a pretty cursory review of this history. It's mostly about the underlying political economy that gave rise to the movement. It's entitled Colonial Institutions and Civil War, Indirect Rule and Maoist Insurgency in India by Shiva G. Mukherjee, Cambridge University Press, 2021. And uh, it does provide a uh, brief chronology of the movement, which I will um, read from just so we can get an overview of who the players are here. The Maoist insurgency in India initially started in 1967 in a village called Naxalbari in the state of West Bengal and the Marxist-Leninist ideology rapidly spread to various parts of India. The Indian government crushed this initial phase by 1973. Following this, the movement fractured, and it was in the late 1970s that different factions regrouped to reemerge in different parts of India, particularly in the states of Bihar and Andhra Pradesh. Three main Maoist groups used violence and consolidated their control, the Maoist Communist Center, MCC, in Bihar, the People's War Group, PWG, in Andhra Pradesh and Chhattisgarh, and the People's Union, PU, operating mostly in Bihar and Jharkhand. In 2004, the PWG and MCC factions unified to form the Communist Party of India Maoist, or CPIM, or CPI Maoist. Since then, the level of guerrilla activities, as well as the geographic zone of influence, expanded rapidly, which prompted the Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh to repeatedly call it India's number one security threat, quote-unquote, By 2008-9, to the insurgency had expanded to almost 150 or more of India's 600-odd districts, and it represents both a serious security threat and a developmental challenge to India's politicians. While the level of violence has declined since 2012, a cyclical pattern of violence has occurred every 20 years, and it is not clear that the insurgency is coming to an end, or simply entering a dormant phase. In fact, attacks in 2016 and early 2017 on Central Reserve Police Force, CRPF, soldiers lend credence to the idea that the Maoists are only in a phase of tactical retreat. Okay, later on he focuses on the um, situation in the state of Andhra Pradesh, which saw an effort at a peace dialogue with the guerrillas, which was ultimately not successful, in response to a government decision to launch coordinated action against the Naxalites by police forces of the various Indian states affected by Naxal violence, the PWG decided to form the People's Guerrilla Army, PGA, In January 2001 in Andhra Pradesh, reorganizing its guerrilla forces. Violence continued and finally culminated in a landmine attack on the convoy of Chandra Babu Naidu, who was then the chief minister of Andhra Pradesh. Naidu and several other ministers were injured. This was a major attack which indicated the increased military skills and resolve of the PWG. The Andhra Pradesh government responded by using special counterinsurgency units called greyhounds against the PWG. Besides paramilitary forces, the PWG kept hitting back by assassinating political leaders, destroying government property and private industries, thus intensifying the violence. In May 2004, the Congress Party was voted to power in Andhra Pradesh, and the new government lifted the ban on the PWG that July, based on electoral promises the Congress Party had made. Maoist leaders were given safe passage, and peace talks were held in the capital city, Hyderabad, in October 2004. The Naxals presented an 11-point charter of demands Including an independent commission to identify land to be distributed to the landless. There were several rounds of talks, but no agreement followed on various contentious issues like land distribution and whether the PWG cadre could carry arms. The Maoists claimed that the Congress government was not sincere about talks and was killing some of their cadres while trying to infiltrate their organization. There were killings and counter-killings by the PWG and police, culminating in the Naxals killing Narsai Reddy, a Congress member of the Legislative Assembly, in August 2005, which led the Congress government to reimpose the ban on the new Communist Party of India, Maoist, CPIM, in August 2005. With the failure of peace negotiations, the police intensified counterinsurgency operations, and the Maoist movement in Andhra Pradesh suffered setbacks, with several top and middle rank leaders killed. A tactical decision was made to reduce operations in the Telangana districts of Andhra Pradesh, and to focus efforts in the Dandakaranya forested regions of Bastar, In Chhattisgarh and Orissa. This called the level of violence in Andhra Pradesh to fall after 2006. While a certain level of grievance continues among the tribal populations in the Telangana districts, the Maoists have not yet been able to increase their levels of operations in Andhra Pradesh. However, the unified CPI Maoist now focuses its activities in the neighboring state of Chhattisgarh, and levels of violence escalated there as violence decreased in Andhra Pradesh. So, a uh, brief overview of the recent phase of the conflict. And uh, to very briefly summarize the rest of the book, which is pretty dense with facts and figures and charts and a certain degree of academic jargon, Shivaji Mukherjee sees the roots of the conflict in the systems of indirect rule of areas which had never been under the firm control of the Mughal Empire, and therefore never came under the firm control of the British Raj, which formally took over from the declining Mughals in 1858. And he sees two key factors here. One is the legacy of local ethnic grievances between ruling elites or administrators in these areas, and an ethnically distinct peasantry, generally Adivasis, indigenous or tribal peoples, as they are called in India, who generally speak pre-Indo-European languages, not related to Hindi or the other major languages of India, and uh, are in remote areas and excluded from the formal economy, the most marginalized and oppressed sector of the peasantry. So this legacy made these areas ripe for rebellion. And the second legacy of this system of indirect rule is a weak state presence in these regions, because the the Mughals and the Raj never directly ruled these areas. The Indian state, established in 1947, which inherited the structures of the old order, was never able to establish effective control, allowing a power vacuum in which guerrillas could emerge. And he identifies two types of indirect rule, the first being that of the zamindars, local landlords, who became surrogate administrators and tax collectors, first for the moguls, and then for the British. And the second being the regional princely states, as they were called, which had emerged as Mughal power declined, or in some cases had never really been under Mughal rule at all, but were internally independent. The zamindari system was mostly in what is now the states of Bihar and West Bengal, in contrast to the Rio Tuari system, which was in the more central areas of India, in which there was direct British administration and tax collection. And the uh, legacy of the princely states was uh, more at issue in what is now the Indian states of Andhra Pradesh and Chhattisgarh. The relevant areas of Andhra Pradesh were under the rule of the princely state of Hyderabad and its reigning Nizam dynasty, which remained formally independent even under British rule, although it came under increasing British influence under a policy of so-called subordinate alliance. But it really only ceased to be at least formally independent when it was absorbed into India in 1948. After a brief military campaign called Operation Polo, the relevant areas of Chhattisgarh were under various small princely states, including most significantly, for our purposes here, Bastar, but also Korea and Udaipur. And Mukherjee writes that there was greater land inequality in these areas than in those under direct rule, as well as a tendency toward what he calls despotic extraction, the plundering of natural resources such as timber and minerals, leaving the impacted communities impoverished. And even today, peasant anger over bauxite and iron mining, especially in Bastar district of Andhra Pradesh, fuels support for the guerrillas. The book details the uh, use of paramilitary groups by the authorities to combat the movement, a kind of modern example of indirect rule and the usual horrific human rights abuses. Uh, very interesting read, learned a lot from the book, but there is not a lot in it on um, Naxalite ideology and why they adopted Maoism, apart from you know the obvious element of looking to the peasantry as a revolutionary class, or what their actual relation was with Mao's China back in the day. And for that, hopefully, I'll have to uh, check out another book that I stumbled upon in my Googling on the topic. India After Naxal Bari, Unfinished History by Bernard de Mello, Monthly Review Press, 2018. So let me get a uh, a copy of that and give it some attention, and we will return at a future date to the question of the Naxalites. Okay, let's move on to the Nagas, one of several ethnic insurgencies in the isolated northeast corner of India. Now, in the last report we did on the conflict earlier this year, we noted protests in the Indian state of Nagaland against the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, or AFSPA, which gives the Indian military broad powers to use deadly force in areas where it's declared to be in effect. And these protests were sparked by a massacre last December when army troops in a village in Nagaland fired on what proved to be a truck full of coal miners returning from work after their shift, not separatist guerrillas had had apparently been suspected. Now, this is really the most remote part of India, right up against the border with Burma. And the Naga people speak a Sino-Tibetan language, most closely related to Burman. Naga guerrillas have been fighting for national liberation of their territory almost continuously since Indian independence, and claim that the Naga people were brought into India illegally and against their will. They actually emphasize that they are not separatist, quote-unquote, because they assert that Nagaland is not legally a part of India. And uh, there's a real paucity of available information in print about the Naga struggle. The two books that have come in since we last discussed the Nagas that I've had a chance to read are first, The Nagas, An Unknown War, India's Threat to Peace published by the Naga National Council in London in 1962, a slim little volume, mostly made up of on-the-scene journalism by a reporter by the name of Gavin Young, British reporter who entered um, Naga land without official permission from the Indian government because it's impossible to get official permission from the Indian government, at least at that time it was. And he was ultimately arrested and imprisoned, and only uh, freed and allowed to return to England after the intercession of the British authorities on his behalf. The book has got uh, great photos of the Naga guerrillas, or home guards, as they called themselves at the time, back in the early 1960s, the home guard of their liberated territory. And the other book is... uh, The Naga Nation and Its Struggle Against Genocide, a report compiled by the IWGIA, the International Working Group on Indigenous Affairs, in Copenhagen, published in 1986. So between these two books and some online research, I've come to a somewhat better understanding of the Naga struggle. Uh, This northeast corner of India, which has long been beset by multiple ethnic insurgencies, is made up of seven states and separated from the rest of India by a very narrow corridor between Bangladesh to the south and Bhutan to the north. And this area had never been under the rule of the Mughals. It had been a patchwork of small feudatory states, as the British called them, which um, owed allegiance to the Burmese Empire. And even these local states never seemed to have much control over the mountain and jungle areas inhabited by tribal peoples, such as Naga's. And what is now the Indian state of Nagaland was sort of ruled or partially ruled by the Dimasa kingdom, based in what is now the neighboring state of Assam, which in turn had some degree of loyalty to the Burmese Empire. This whole region came under British rule during the First Anglo-Burmese War in 1825. And upon taking over, the Brits would separate it from the rest of Burma and attach it to the Raj after 1858. But they, the Brits, would also never have very effective control of the hinterlands. And in fact, for the uh, first few generations, what is now the Indian state of Nagaland was really divided into two entities. One, the Naga Nagakills Excluded Area, so named because it was excluded from the laws governing the rest of British India, but under its own internal colonial regime. And then to the north, deeper into the mountains, the territory of the free Nagas, as they were called, who were not under British control at all. And additionally, some Naga areas were on the Burma side of the border and administrated separately to the degree that it was administered at all. The British established a local capital at Kohima within the Naga Hills excluded area and established tea plantations, but they were met with raids From the Free Naga area, leading to military expeditions to get the area under control between the 1830s and the 1870s. But they didn't really succeed in establishing their rule there until 1902, and even then, as a so called tribal area with a large degree of local autonomy. In 1929, the Simon Commission called for the two Naga territories, the excluded area and the tribal area, to be merged and brought under the same system of laws governing the rest of British India. And this was protested by the Naga Club, the first effort at a Naga national self-organization. In 1944, Nagaland saw the most significant battle of the Second World War in India, the Battle of Kohima, known as the Stalingrad of the East, in which a Japanese incursion from Burma was turned back by the British and their local Naga allies, which together with the simultaneous Battle of Imphal in the neighboring region of Manipur was really the turning point in the struggle for Southeast Asia. And this period also saw the emergence of the um, Heraka religious movement, which seems to translate as purity, as near as I can figure out. Now, interestingly, the Nagas are mostly Baptists, thanks to the early work of American missionaries. And this religious identity has apparently become important to them as a symbol of their rejection of both British rule that attempted to impose Anglicanism and Indian rule, which more informally attempted to impose Hinduism. But the Nagas were sort of syncretistic Baptists, with a large element of their pre-Christian spirituality surviving, and the Haraka movement was a conscious attempt to revive this indigenous spirituality, and particularly the worship of a deity known as Tinkau Raghuang, This movement animated a Naga rebellion in the early 1930s, led by a young woman, Gaidinlu Pame, or Rani Gaidinlu, Queen Gaidinlu, who was considered to be an incarnation of the goddess Cherachamdinlu. She was arrested by the British in 1932 at the age of 16, and would remain in prison until Indian independence. Now, Mohandas Gandhi apparently made at least one statement in support of the right of the Nagas to an independent state. It's quoted in the IWGIA publication, although it is not footnoted, and I was not able to find it online, so I'm slightly skeptical about the provenance of the quote, but apparently Gandhi was approached by a, uh, a Naga delegation in July 1947 and said, quote, Nagas have every right to be independent. I believe in the brotherhood of man, but I do not believe in force or forced union. If you do not wish to join the Union of India, nobody will force you to do that, End quote. But India's first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, seems to have been kind of playing a double game with the Nagas. He honored Rani Gaidinlu as an icon of Indian independence and had her freed from prison, but maneuvered against Naga independence. Now, the pro independence body to emerge at this time was the um, Naga National Council, NNC which developed out of the Naga Kills District Tribal Council, the British-recognized body of autonomous rule in the tribal area, and was kind of a more formally pro-independence successor to the Naga Club. In the Naga-Akbar-Kidari Accord of June 1947, Named for one of the interior administrators of newly independent India, the right to Naga self-determination was formally recognized, and a Naga plebiscite was allowed in 1951, which overwhelmingly went for a sovereign identity, quote-unquote, for the Naga people. But the Indian state was meanwhile cultivating a rival group to the NNC, the Naga People's Convention, or NPC, which was advocating integration into India. And this finally prompted the NNC to declare the federal Naga government, FNG, and take up arms in 1956. And the war began, which is really still going on today. In the early years of the war, the FNG seems to have had actual territorial control over large parts of what had been the tribal area, and really functioned as a an actual government there. And this is one of the conflicts that led to the passage of the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, AFSPA, in 1958 and the following years saw counterinsurgency campaigns, paramilitary groups, the usual attendant atrocities, massacres, mass rape by Indian troops and their paramilitary collaborators, the burning of villages, internment of the populace in makeshift concentration camps. The NNC president and FNG leader, Angami Zapu Fizo, or A.Z. Fizo, went into exile in 1960 to try to bring the situation to the world's attention. He brought a charge of genocide against the Indian state before the International Commission of Jurists and wrote up a document called The Fate of the Naga People, an Appeal to the World, published in London in 1960. But the world was paying little note, just as it pays little note today, because this conflict doesn't fit into the GWAT paradigm. Back then, it didn't really fit into the Cold War paradigm. So it was largely ignored, both in the world press and in the international corridors of power. The Naga People's Convention NPC... Formally agreed to statehood for Nagaland in 1961, with both parts to be administratively unified and with its capital at Kohima, and this was instated in 1963. But many ethnic Nagas ended up in neighboring Assam state, leading to an Assam Nagaland border dispute, which continues to this day and the Assam Rifles, the state police force, was brought into Nagaland to insist the counterinsurgency. There was a ceasefire with the FNG in 1964, but some militants refused to accept this and began making their way to China starting in 1967 and received military training from the People's Liberation Army in Yunnan province which is where the influence of Maoism begins, and the conflict taking on something of a Cold War caste, although it remained largely invisible to the outside world. The Indian government unilaterally ended the ceasefire in September 1972, and war resumed until November 1975, when the NNC Signed a more formal peace deal with the Indian government, the Shillong Accord, agreeing to lay down arms and disband the federal Naga government in exchange for guarantees of special autonomy status for the state of Nagaland. But the factions now under Chinese influence remained in arms, and abuses continued with massive forest clearing both as a form of counterinsurgency and for timber sales, oil exploitation with the attendant ecological damage, and so-called transmigration or colonization of the territory with Hindi-speaking outsiders. In 1980, the remaining guerrilla factions united as the National Socialist Council of Nagaland, NSCN, which has waged an insurgency ever since, although for the past 30 years it has been splintered into two factions, the NSCNK, named for its leader S.S. Kaplang, and the NSCNIM for its leaders Thwingaleng Muiva and Isak Chisi Swoo. The NSCNK seems to be more intransigent, and seeks an independent state uniting all of the Naga people, not only in Nagaland and Assam, but also in Burma. The NSCNIM seems somewhat more conciliatory and entered into peace talks with the Indian government in 2003 with a framework agreement for a Naga peace accord, as it was called, agreed to in 2015. So, an agreement for a peace accord rather than an actual peace accord. But the talks have since broken down, and the NSCNIM remains in arms. And there has unfortunately been a good deal of interfactional violence between the two groups, the NSCNIM and NSCNK. And as we see, human rights abuses at the hands of the Indian state continue in Nagaland today, and in addition to the guerrilla struggle, there is a mobilized civil movement in Nagaland, which is demanding good faith negotiations with the Indian state, which, even if they are stopping short of demands for independence, they say means Delhi acknowledging that Nagaland has been denied self-determination and using that as a starting point for the talks. So, um, interesting stuff. And if you are interested in finding out more about such under-reported conflicts around the world, please check out our website, countervortex.org, where I write every day on the blog or daily report and rant every week on the podcast about such esoteric matters. Esoteric, that is for us, in places like New York City, not esoteric for the Nagas and the Adivasis. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon to the tune of just a dollar or two per weekly podcast. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.